Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the joy it is to be able to meet together and we look forward to next week when uh, we can meet in even greater numbers here, we can sing together. Uh, but for now, help us not to miss this opportunity to learn from your word. Uh, we pray that as we look at Revelation chapter 7 together, this wonderful passage, that you will encourage us with this wonderful picture of the new creation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I love watching movies and I haven't got to watch a lot certainly at the cinema this year uh, but I don't know if you ever noticed do you watch those movies where you just get to the end and you're willing something good to happen and then the movie ends and it hasn't happened have you noticed how modern movies seem to think that you don't have to let the good guy win anymore or, or, or the, the guy doesn't get the girl anymore you know so you get to the end of the movie and you just, you just want the happy ending to happen and it doesn't happen he loses or she ends up marrying the other guy my family made me watch La La Land the other day I don't know if you've seen that movie I'm going to ruin it for you now. it's awful let's get to the end it's like awful you just go oh how depressing I want them to play some cartoons for me so that I could just sort of be pepped up before I you know went back out into the world so back in the glory days of cinema which for me is around the 1980s uh, every movie had to have a happy ending so you know you, you knew it didn't matter how much pain they went through they would win in the end they'd get the girl in the end or she'd get the guy whatever it is and even if they lost the fight like Rocky so I'm going to ruin Rocky for you now you've had 40 years to watch it but you know he loses the fight at the end but he wins the moral victory he's the winner in that sense not so with lots of modern movies especially the more artsy ones they've become more realistic and in real life often people don't win that's reality in real life people experience pain people experience rejection and it doesn't get better and so you get to the end of these movies and it's like you've just been run through the ringer of real life and as I say you just wanted to play something happy for you because I get enough real life in real life I don't go to the movies for real life I go to escape but the picture in Revelation chapter 6 last week just look back at chapter 6 if you weren't with us you'll need to remind yourself uh, it was like a modern movie I thought uh, the preachers I heard a couple of different preachers last week they were trying really hard and they were great preachers but it was just an awful picture with very little hope and so if you remember where we are in the book of Revelation John is being given a vision and in the vision Jesus is unfolding all of history to us and he's giving us a description of what it's like to live in this world between his first coming when he died and rose again and his second coming when he returns in glory and last week what Jesus showed us is the great constant of history will be tyranny and injustice that is the constant of history there will be wars there'll be plagues there will be hunger there will be injustice there'll be all those things and if you know any history at all you know that for the last 2,000 years Jesus has been proven right and in fact if you've lived the last 12 months you know Jesus has been proven right this is the reality what Jesus is describing of our fallen broken world and even scarier though last week we saw that Christians are not just not immune to the awful things of this world Christians are actually going to cop it even more because we won't just get the things that everyone gets on top of that Christians Jesus told us will be persecuted and many Christians are going to die for their faith and again how sadly true has that proven and it's not just history uh, if you go to Iran today or the Sudan today or northern Nigeria today you'll see that Christians are still killed every day just for following the name of Jesus 
And then the final part of chapter 6, and it was sort of like the, the bitter icing on the cake, it was the final judgment day. So I said, there he is, here's history. And at the end, Jesus will return and all people will be judged, great and small. We'll all be held accountable for how we've lived, for how we've treated God, for how we've treated one another. And that is where we finished last week with that horrible picture. And I don't care how great our preachers were. It was hard going. It was just hard. And so if all you had was Revelation chapter 6, the message would be, our world is broken. Our world is horrible. Horrible people will probably do bad things to you. Then God will judge the whole world. That is not the sort of movie you want to go home from afterwards, is it? But here's the beautiful thing. The story doesn't end at chapter 6. It goes on to chapter 7. And chapter 7 is the wonderful answer to the pain of chapter 6. Chapter 7 gives us two wonderful answers, in fact, remedies, if you like, to the pain of chapter 6. The first is it tells us what is God doing now? And that is God is preserving his people. And then secondly, what does the future hold? And there it tells us God is giving us something far better than this fallen, broken world. So open up chapter 7 and the first heading now, God is preserving his people. So look from verse 1. It says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. It's picture language. We know this from Revelation. So this is not what is literally going on. In chapter 6, use the image of the four horsemen who get known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, riding out, bringing tyranny, bringing pain on the earth. It switches here. The picture changes to four winds blowing across the earth, bringing pain and injustice. But the point here is they do not just get to blow wherever they want. God's angels are holding back these winds of suffering and pain and they're holding them back until God has done something and the thing is it is until he has marked out his children so look from verse 2 it says then I saw another angel who had the seal of the living God rise up from the east he cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were empowered to harm the earth and the sea don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the slaves of our God on their foreheads it's like, hang on, winds of pain, hang on, all you suffering. Before you do your work, I'm going to place a seal on the forehead of all of God's slaves, that is God's followers, God's children. A seal was a mark of ownership. We're saying this, it's like when you see a for sale sign on a, a, and, and it's got the sold sticker across it. That's what it was. It says, this one here, this one is mine. And I think he purposely uses the language of God's slaves here. We struggle with that language, don't we? It's horrible, an idea in human terms, for one person to own another person. But how wonderful is it to be owned by God? That's what it's saying. It's saying this is a mark of ownership. God owns this one. And so to have the mark of God on you is to have God say, that one is mine, don't you dare do anything to her. Or do not touch him. That's the picture here. And how many will be marked out with that seal? Well, we won't read it all out again, uh, but it talks about 144,000. Uh, and then it's very cryptic because it says that that is made up of 12,000 from the 12 different tribes of Israel, but it's not actually the 12 tribes of Israel if you read closely, but I'll leave you for that to look at that later on. Now, who is this 144,000? Who are these people sealed by God? Well, there's all sorts of different views, uh, but I hope you have seen already that the book of Revelation uses numbers symbolically. 
So every time so far it's used the number 12 or a variation of 12 that's been symbolic for the people of God. Uh, And when it uses the number thousands, it means a really big number. Like we say there were thousands of people at the football or there were thousands of people at the beach or something like that. So this is not saying there are a literal 144,000 true slaves of God, which is what a lot of cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses claim. And generally, the sort of claim is only people baptised in our church or with our strange beliefs uh, get the special spot in heaven that these 144,000 get. That's not what it's talking about. Other people think this is talking about Old Testament believers. And it does say there in verse 4, if you look, from every tribe of the Israelites. So people think this is faithful followers of God from before the time of Jesus, from the Old Covenant. So this is people like David or Ruth or Abraham or Samuel uh, or any Jew who trusted in God and his promises. So the idea there would be that God has kept those people. They don't, they're not disadvantaged because they lived before the time of Jesus. And that might be a reading of this, that might be right. But I think this is actually talking about us. We are the 144,000, or at least 61 of them in the building here. Uh, It's talking about Christians. This is talking about anyone who is God's child. The New Testament often sees the church as, as continuation of Israel, and it uses the language of Israel to talk about the church. You see it right through the New Testament. It picks up us. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. We are the new Israel in that sense. And so the symbolism of the 12 tribes here is that the full number of God's people is marked out by God. And so if that's right, the point of this, I think, is actually wonderful and comforting. It's saying, if you are one of God's slaves, that is, if you are someone who has come to know Jesus, if you are someone who believes that Jesus died for your sins and has risen again, so that you have the hope of eternal life, then you are marked out by God. See, the Apostle Paul talks about receiving the seal of the Holy Spirit, when we trust in Jesus for our salvation. It's the guarantee of our inheritance. And I think this is the same idea. The seal is God saying, that one is mine and nothing and no one can take that away from them. No one can change that. And so the point is, if you are a Christian, then yes, horrible things may happen. And they may even happen to you. There is no guarantee Christians will not suffer. There's no guarantee that we will not fall sick, we will not face conflict, we will not face persecution. But whatever happens to us, we are marked out by God and nothing can take that away from us. Nothing can take away from you your place in God's eternal kingdom. That's the commitment God makes to us now if we trust in Jesus. And of course, if you are someone who doesn't yet follow Jesus, then this passage invites you to come and find that security because you will never find it in this world. This world is broken and this world will come to an end. If you want to find that security, only God can provide that and only in Christ. So this is the first answer to the pain of this fallen, broken world. Know that if you are one of God's, He is keeping you. He is preserving you. And that's a great comfort to know that. There's a sense to which what does that matter if we still die and face judgment? What does it matter that God's keeping you and you're God's now if we still die at the end of it and face judgment? You know, when you, uh, what's the benefit? What's the benefit of being sealed by God? 
When you uh, leave a theme park, which is, a, again, a strange experience in 2020. I don't know if anyone's been to a theme park in a COVID world. But anyway, you know when you leave a theme park and as you go, they say, would you like a stamp on your hand so you can come back in again? You know how you get the stamp? And it's always one you can't wash off. Have you ever noticed that? You're, you are marked. People know you've been to Dreamworld for six weeks <laughs> afterwards. Now, that is, if it's a good theme park with lots of rides and attractions and there's more time to go back in, I say get the stamp. But if it's a dud theme park, what's the use getting a stamp? We were in South Australia a few years ago. Sam, I think Sam was our only kid at that point, uh, and he was very little, and we were in this little country town. Uh, there was actually someone from there here this morning, and I got a bit embarrassed. But anyway, uh, there was this little country town, and they had one of those wildlife parks. And it said, come and see all the native animals. Said, Sam will love to see that. Uh, and so we go into the wildlife park, and there's like three kangaroos about 120 metres away up behind a fence. I think the wombat hadn't been seen since 1973. But there were guinea pigs everywhere. I don't know. I thought guinea pigs were from South America. But I don't know what happened. They had maybe two when they bred. I don't know. But as we left, after about 25 minutes, as I asked, oh, would you like a stamp? I felt like, I'm never coming back here again. I don't, what, do I, what about God's seal? What is the benefit of getting the stamp of God on you? Well, that's what brings us to John's next vision which sets out the future. He gives us a glimpse into the future God has in store for those who are sealed by him. So look at point two, what does the future hold? Well, it's God gives us something far better than this world and that's verses 9 to 17. I don't know if you have a picture of heaven in your mind when I say, let's talk about heaven, what do you think of? I think most people, because of advertising and movies, often sort of think of people sort of floating around with harps and on clouds and all that sort of stuff. The Bible's real picture is much more wonderful than that. The Bible says when Jesus returns to judge the world, he will bring about a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And it will be real and it will be physical. You won't just sort of float around, you will eat and drink with Jesus. You will get to experience the wonderful things of a perfect creation. The difference is there will be no more sin. The difference is there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more tears, there will be no more death. And here in this next part of the chapter, we're just given a little preview of it, a little foretaste of it. And I'm just going to draw out three quick highlights of what we see there. So the first is, heaven will be overflowing. Look with me from verse 9. It says, after this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Sometimes Christians can think, am I the only one? Especially if you're struggling in a place and you're a part of a small church and there's not many other brothers and sisters in Christ, you can think, am I, the, am I strange? Am I the only person who, who sees this as real? And, and even in a strong, healthy church like ours, there's, there's more people on a Sunday worshipping at Westfield or worshipping at the beach, even during COVID, than there is a church. But that's what we need to remember. God has been calling together his people from across the whole world and from across all of time. And we will join together with that great multitude in heaven and it will be a multitude you cannot count. You will not be able to see the end of the gathering of God's people. And there will be people there from every nation and not just every nation, every tribe that's a part of every nation and every tongue that's spoken in every day. How many languages are spoken in India, Gladwin? I'll put him on the spot. 2,000 plus. Well, there'll be someone from every one of those languages there in heaven. Do you see how amazing that is? See how incredible that is? 
Now, of course, we want to reflect that now in our church as much as we can with COVID restrictions, but we, we want to see more and more people come and join us now. We want to be a multitude you can't count crammed into this building. I'm looking forward to it. We want to see more and more nations represented every week as we gather together here. But however good our church is, it pales compared to when we stand before the throne of heaven. Do not buy the lie that the gospel is irrelevant and the gospel is insignificant. The message of Jesus is the most powerful force that has ever been at work in our world. Nothing compares to it. And he's still at work gathering this multitude together from every nation today. And if the work is a little slow in Sydney sometimes at the moment, can I tell you the work of the gospel in China or in India or in Africa is anything but slow. The gospel of Jesus Christ is bringing that great multitude together. And it will be wonderful when we are a part of it. Second thing you see here is that God will be given the honour and the glory he deserves. How good will it be next week to be able to sing God's praises together here at church? Still haven't worked out if you've got to wear a mask before you do it or not and how close you can sit and all that. But just how good will it be? I've loved our musicians, but how good will it be to drown them out? That's not meant to be disrespectful, guys. But it'll be wonderful, won't it? Now, that'll be wonderful for us. But actually, it's not about us, it's about God. You see, the greatest tragedy in the world at the moment is that Jesus Christ's name is used as a swear word. The greatest tragedy in our world at the moment is people mock God and make fun of God. In heaven, God's name will receive the honour and the glory that it deserves, not just from a, a gathering of people here in church or in church there, but from everyone. God's name will be honoured. And we will join together. When we sing together next week, we are having a little foretaste of heaven. Because in heaven, we'll join together with the angels, we'll join with the African choir, with the whatever other cultural group you can think of, the European opera singers. I couldn't think of what Europeans do. You know what I mean. And together, we'll declare God's praises. That's the picture here. Look at verse 10. It says, They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Or verse 12, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. And that will be wonderful for us to be a part of, but how much more wonderful that God will be receiving the glory and honour and worship that he deserves and will be a part of it. That's heaven. Third and final thing. In heaven, the persecuted will be vindicated. Heaven will be wonderful for everyone who knows Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, it will be wonderful. And we're going to see that in the chapters to come. But heaven will be especially wonderful for the Christian for whom this world was awful, for whom this life was terrible. I think often we modern Western Christians don't really long for heaven because we're in this strange little bubble that has only existed for a tiny moment of history and a tiny moment of our world today, where we actually think it's pretty good here. Most people in our world and most people throughout history wonder, where will my next meal come from? Most people in our world and most people throughout history wonder, will I live past 40? In Australia, you don't, you don't think about that, so you think, actually, I've got a pretty good... What do I look forward to heaven for? And it's only when we're jolted out of our lethargy by illness or a crisis, or a relationship breakdown, or or something like that, 
that we get woken up. You see, that is just normal human experience in most of the world. See, the Christian who lives in a place where they are mocked every day for following Jesus, they long for heaven. The, the Christian whose family disowns them because of their faith, the Christian who's thrown into jail or beaten up because of their faith, and especially the Christian who is killed for their faith, like I talked about before, that's who this chapter focuses on. And it says that person will be wonderfully vindicated. Look from verse 13. It says, Then one of the elders in heaven asked me, Who are these people robed in white? Where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. And then he told me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He's saying these are the people who've copped it for their faith. This is, at this point of history that John was writing this, every one of his brother apostles. This time, every one of them had been martyred for their faith. Some of them were crucified upside down rather than deny Jesus. This is Thomas Cramner, the great Archbishop of Canterbury, who was burnt at the stake rather than deny that you're saved by faith in Jesus alone. This is Jim Elliott, the missionary I talked about a few weeks ago, who was killed in South America, taking the gospel to people in the Amazon. And this is the nameless person today in northern Nigeria who was put to death for being a Christian. Or the nameless person today, because this is statistically what happens in our world today, who was put to death in Saudi Arabia for following the name of Christ. In heaven, those people are dressed in white. It's the colour of victory, but you see there it says they've been made pure by the death of Jesus, they've been washed clean. And the image is that their clothes which are covered in their own blood from their suffering are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And verse 15, look there, it says they will have a special place in serving God. And then verse 16 says they'll never miss out on anything ever again, they'll never experience pain again, they'll never experience deprivation again. And Jesus will care for them, it says, like a gentle shepherd cares for his sheep. Look at verse 17. It says, for the lamb who is at the centre of the throne will shepherd them, he will guide them to springs of living waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that just the most wonderful picture? And even more amazingly, that is what God has in store for you as well, if you trust in Jesus. So you, don't, you don't just, this isn't just for the martyrs, it's just that it's so wonderful for the martyrs but it's for you as well if you trust in Jesus. Even if you never face that sort of suffering here in this life, even if we have it pretty easy, this is what God has in store. And so as I finish, why have we been given this wonderful picture in Revelation chapter 7? Well, first of all, it's to say to you, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, come and join us there. That's the first thing. Come and join us there. Do not face the judgment of God that we saw last week in Revelation chapter 6. Come and join us by putting your faith in Jesus. And I want to invite you to do it tonight. If you've not done it before, come and talk to me about it if you'd like to. But to those of us who do follow Jesus, this is here to encourage us to not let the pain of this world, the suffering of this world, cloud our judgment. It's so that when we face trials and when we face struggles and when we face sufferings, we don't say, where's God? Why is, why is God letting this happen to me? We say, no, no, this is hard, but I will keep following Jesus because I know, first of all, that I'm marked out by God, I'm his, and nothing can take that away from me. 
And second of all, I know that my current struggles are not even worth comparing with what God has in store for me in heaven. So I pray that you share in this hope. I pray that Revelation 7 is what you look forward to because you trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful, encouraging picture. We thank you that all those who trust in Christ are sealed, guaranteed our inheritance in the new creation. And Father, we thank you that we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears and no more sin. And so, Father, help us to long for that. And as we face suffering in this fallen, broken world, and we will, we pray that we'll never turn us aside from continuing to trust in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.